remember that suicide's a rare outcome, even among overtly suicidal people, and that that person, you know, has survived to this date, and that each person has, um, all of their ancestors have survived all sorts of things for tens and thousands of generations. And so we're, we are survivors, all of us. I'm Adam Hunt, and this is the Evolving Psychiatry Podcast, rethinking mental health through an evolutionary lens. Share it with the people who matter, like it if you like it, subscribe if you want to hear more. Okay, so Matthew Large is a conjoint professor in the School of Psychiatry, uh, University of New South Wales, and the clinical director of mental health in the Eastern Suburbs Mental Health Service based at the Prince of Wales Hospitals in Sydney. Dr. Large has long-standing research interests in suicide, psychiatric aspects of homicide, and substance abuse by people with mental illness. He is a leading critic of current risk assessment practices in mental health care, and is a highly ranked international researcher in both suicide and homicide. Today, we're talking about a chapter he co-authored alongside Kaz Sopa and Pablo Okejo in the upcoming evolutionary psychiatry volume to be published by Cambridge University Press. Um, the title of the chapter is uh, An Evolutionary Clinical Call to Transcend Suicide Risk Assessment. So thank you so much, Dr. Large, for, for joining us um, on this very important and, and interesting topic. And it's, it's a wonderful chapter. Um, so, so to start, could you briefly explain the pain and brain model of suicide uh, and some key pieces of evidence supporting it? Yeah, thank you, Adam. Look, I might start off by saying that suicide is a deeply mysterious phenomenon. Uh, models of suicide, however neat they may seem to be, um, have very little predictive power. I've been a psychiatrist for nearly 30 years, and I've assisted literally 1,000, probably more than 10,000 suicidal people in emergency departments and the like. Very few have died by suicide, and when I have been aware of a suicide, it's usually been a huge surprise. In contrast to other suicide models that attempt to explain why suicidal ideas emerge and how they're translated into suicidal behaviour, uh, the pain-brain model postulates that um, suicidal thoughts and behaviours including suicide, are actually natural responses to the psychological and other pains we experience as humans. Um, however, in the interests of greater evolutionary fitness and over tens of thousands of years, natural selection pressure has been placed on humans to develop a set of adaptive responses or defenses against suicide. So the pain-brain theory postulates several lines of defenses inherent to human psychology. The frontline defences include having like a warmer than natural um, emotional state, um, placing a high value on one's own life, um, natural kind of human optimism, and various psychological defences that we all have to suppress bad news. And they're not really, these aren't really suicide, uh, terribly suicide specific, um, but they're the frontline defences. The second defences are sometimes called fenders and those that uh, put a negative value on suicidal thoughts and behaviour. And that's very evident clinically um, and in the taboos around suicide. Um, it's very obvious in the reluctance of many people to discuss suicide. And the last line of defences are those that kick in when the other defences have failed and when they're really needed. Um, these are sort of emergency suicide prevention measures, drastic interventions in the most difficult times. They disrupt normal cognition and motivation, um, usually enough to stop any suicidal thoughts turning into lethal actions. Um, patients often complain that it's actually very hard to kill yourself, and all psychiatrists will recall patients who have simply been too fatigued or disorganised or psychomotor retarded to, to kill themselves. 
Hence, the um, pain brain model, um, according to the pain brain model, suicides that do occur don't occur because of a particular set of circumstances that might be articulated um, by a suicide theory. Um, but instead they occur because at that particular time, um, the person's suicide trajectory has evaded the multiple defenses against suicide. And so um, look over evolutionary timescales, mechanisms have developed to detect and prevent all usefully taggable suicide risk trajectories, um, leaving essentially no adaptive markers of suicide. This means that the suicides that do occur are intrinsically unpredictable. Statistical residuals, if you like, of adaptive algorithms that have extended as they as far as they can, their kind of edge effects. Um, and as such, all suicides can be considered to be um, really more like mental accidents than a um, predictable outcome. Right. Yeah. That's that's one thing that really comes through in the chapter is how um, how suicide is is basically inherently uh, unpredictable. Um, so, so yes, what, what about this um, inherent unpredictability? Um, how, why should we expect this as a consequence from evolutionary theory? How can we kind of make sense of that within the, the context of um, natural selection and, and evolution? So evolutionary theory predicts that um, the suicides that will occur on a random basis because um, the actual suicides that do occur are devoid of actionable clues to alert evolved suicide protection systems. And um, so um, Kaz Soper has been writing about this for a long time and um, you know, predicting that suicides that would occur under this model should be random. And that's exactly what 50 years of um, intense global suicide research has found. Um, Franklin and Associates um, have meta-analyzed meta all the longitudinal studies of suicide risk factors, resulting in um, you know, a variety of very important publications in peer-reviewed journals, and with uncontested contested findings that um, no particular suicide risk factor or class of suicide risk factors contributes to suicide meaningfully over chance, is the phrase they use, meaningfully over chance. Now, our own research has focused on suicide risk modeling using multiple risk factors. Um, and we found that um, combining risk factors results in predictions that are only very slightly better than um, uh, you know, predictions made on the base of an individual risk factor. Um, several studies have now found that suicide predictions that include a, a more risk factors don't perform any better than those that include as few as two factors. Um, and this very surprising finding has been replicated for both suicidal behavior, like suicide attempts, and suicide among both inpatients and outpatients. Now, um, the implication of the finding that more knowledge of the patient does not lead to better predictions suggests that uncertainty about suicide is um, aleatory rather than epistemic. So they're two quite interesting concepts. Epistemic uncertainty is that that can be resolved by further knowledge. So if a smoker you know, starts coughing up blood, um, then whether they do or not have do not have lung cancer can be evolved um, can be determined by further medical investigations, um, obviously a CT scan and a biopsy ultimately. Um, on the other hand, uncertainty about whether a teenage smoker will develop lung cancer um, in the future is really a matter of chance and more information can't really help you um, as to whether this is going to occur. And this finding that further information is unhelpful suggests that the uncertainty around suicide is a laboratory rather than random. And that's exactly what evolutionary 
um, theory would predict. Right, because yes, we, we should have evolved to avoid as much suicide as possible, and we haven't. Um, yeah, and so the, the cases that we're missing are the things that you know even evolution um, couldn't couldn't catch. Um, right, so this is you know, this is a really interesting perspective, and I'm sure you know thinking thinking about suicide in this way um, clearly has you know consequences for the for the general public and, and clinicians. Um, so so in your opinion, what are the main takeaways um, of this evolutionary perspective? Well, I've been living and working with this sort of thinking for about a decade now, and I think it has, you know, really profound and ultimately hopeful implications for um, clinical practice and individual patients. Um, the belief that, you know, suicide is intrinsically unpredictable um, um, is, is a confronting idea. Um, but um, in our paper, we set out th 10 consequences of this, um, and the first of which is um, you know, be skeptical of simplistic solutions. And I suppose here um, I'd be saying be skeptical about this as well and think about it and test the evidence. Um, uh, but um, and in your practice, um, ignore overly prescriptive guidelines, um, rely on your humanity, your clinical skills, and your really global clinical judgment. And um, second thing is, um, uh, you know, be alert for distress. Um, and it's really distress that psychiatrists treat and is a worthy um, you know, topic of clinical attention, irrespective of suicide. And actually, suicidal ideas, you know, particularly are not strongly associated with later suicide, nor is suicidal behavior. So don't focus too much on people who you might get the idea of suicidal, because hardly any of those people will kill themselves. And there's a much broader class of people who are legitimate focuses for like psychiatric and psychological efforts. Um, the third is um, probably a pretty ordinary one. It's really, um, you know, be an active um, listener, um, uh, careful listening, listen, listen carefully to any distressed person you might meet and, um, you know, be as human and honest as you um, can be. Try to understand the patient is likely to be intrinsically helpful, um, even if it, um, you know, can't necessarily, um, uh, you know, bring about an end to, you know, suicidal thinking. Um, be respectful, you know, assume that a distressed person has pretty much the same sort of agency and decision making that you have. And, um, you know, refrain from kind of tick, ticker box um, approaches, approaches that um, kind of remove, um, you know, the patient from the equation and rely on things that are sort of external and arbitrary. Um, this is a really important one is don't panic. Um, so, um, you know, suicidal thoughts and behaviours are frightening to the patient and they're frightening to the people assessing them. Um, but your feelings um, will influence the patients and you need to be able to regulate your um, regulate your own, your own emotions. Remember that suicide's a rare outcome, even among overtly suicidal people, and that that person, you know, has survived to this date and that each person has, um, all of their ancestors have survived all sorts of things for tens and thousands of generations. And so we're, we are survivors, all of us. Um, I'd say, um, you know, um, you know, there are prohibitions on talking about suicide and um, many distressed people might have difficulty communicating with you about it. So, you know, tread softly, um, don't interrogate them. Um, and if you ever face the choice between like developing rapport with a patient and getting along with them, or trying to get a more complete picture, tolerate the uncertainty because 
you know, more information is not really going to help you in a predictive sense. So just get along with the patient. Um, so number seven is be humble. So, um, you know, be a re realistic about your abilities um, and endeavour to, you know, empower the person. Um, every patient has, you know, things that have kept them alive. Um, and there's not much evidence that you can do a lot beyond this. And there's a very recent uh, meta-analysis of the effectiveness of suicide prevention measures, um, which is, um, you know, at one level, it's very depressing. The effect sizes are extraordinarily small um, and have not been improving in the last 50 years. Also a, a paper by Franklin. So don't exaggerate the effectiveness of any suicide prevention interventions. It's very hard to do better than, you know, Mother Nature. Um, following on from this is use hospitalisation sparingly. I mean, no suicide risk factor or combination of risk factors can bring sufficient certainty about suicide to detain a person against their will, in my view. Um, psychiatric hospitalisation is often traumatic, stigmatising and isolating, and suicide rates in psychiatric hospitals are really quite high and um, very high after discharge. So um, be really careful around use of hospitalisation. Um, when you do, um, you know, think about particular specific interventions, you know, use the medical evidence. And of course, the best evidence is for, um, you know, things to do with restriction of lethal methods. Um, so, you know, asking people about firearms, getting medication out of the house, um, are two kind of really obvious ones. Um, but use the evidence that's there. That's there. And uh, the last one is, you know, if you come to think this through, and the first thing I suggest is that you do try to think it through, um, and you reach the conclusion reach a conclusion yourself that's similar to the conclusions that um, we've reached, then um, the, well, the first thing is our experience of talking to patients is that they kind of already know this. Um, it's not a difficult sell to patients that you don't know what they're going to do next. They don't know what they're going to do next. It's really not a difficult sell at all. But colleagues steeped in psychiatric orthodoxy can be quite, um, you know, can have quite different views. And so, um, you know, learning to how to explain this to, to patients, their families, colleagues, administrators, um, and you know, ultimately lawyers in the courts is really um, important. And in doing this, you know, you, you need to use the same sort of skills that you have with patients. So, um, you know, listen, um, trust the intelligence of others, and uh, you know, be persistently friendly, honest, you know, informed, humble, and knowledgeable. Right. That's. Um... It's really powerful advice. I mean, I think with many explanations from evolutionary psychiatry, we're not adding anything new, but we're just encouraging a more holistic view of the evidence and a more honest view um, and moving people away from this, this kind of orthodoxy that you're, you're talking about. Um, and I can see why, well, I mean, this chapter and this, this perspective is so important for, for clinicians and the public just to kind of come to terms with suicide and what we can do. And, and as you say, what we, what we can't do, um, I really did like one of my favorite parts of the chapter was when you talked about all the ancestors that came before us, you know, having to survive against these, these, um, you know, terrible circumstances. I thought it was, yeah, a really beautiful um, passage and a, a really interesting um, topic and chapter. Um, so, so thank you so much, Dr. Large for, for joining me. I'm sure people will really um, gain something from this, from this interview. Yeah, th th thank you very much. Cheers. <laughs>